Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. Pico Iyer is a man of the open road in the age of jetliners. He's a polymath, a traveler, an essayist, with as good a claim as any to a universal eye on global culture and consciousness. But there's a swerve in Pico's new book titled Autumn Light. The complexity is still there in his background, Hindu Brahmin parents, a sterling education at Eton, Oxford, and Harvard, and his nearly 30-year marriage to a Japanese wife. But the movable sensibility, the diversity in his spirit is settling down. Autumn Light in stylized nonfiction is about adopting Japan as his spiritual home. Japan is his way of deciphering the season of decline. In his 20s, he imagined autumn as the time that teaches us how to die. But that's winter, as you can see now in his 60s. Autumn is the harder task of learning how to watch everyone you care for die. This hour is Pico Iyer in conversation on all things Japanese. I asked him to begin with his daily routine. I wake up in a tiny two-room rented apartment, pay $700 a month as if we're starving students, which we feel as if we are. We've been living in this completely modern neighborhood or suburb on the outskirts of the 8th century capital of Nara for 26 years. We being... My wife, Hiroko, from Kyoto, Japan, 20 miles from Nara, and I... And I make the 10-foot commute to my breakfast table. We have bark or handle on the system. The sun is streaming in, making slices across our little room as it rises above Ikoma Mountain behind us. Two, three cups of tea, perhaps. Two pieces of freshly baked bread. I go to my child's desk, which I have co-opted from my formerly eight-year-old stepdaughter filled with pictures of Hello Kitty and Brad mm. Pitt from her girlhood. And I just write for five hours. I take two walks around the neighborhood, and that's when my real writing gets done, because I'm, in a sense, closing my eyes. I'm not focusing on details. I'm seeing a larger picture as soon as I'm taking my walks. I come back. I make a cup of strong tea. I get three or four sweet, tiny Japanese tangerines. I walk out to our tiny terrace with a great old friend, which is to say a substantial novel or work of nonfiction. Often it'll be Emily Dickinson, Thoreau, William James. Mm. Recently, Zadie Smith, George Sanders, Catherine Boo, but something that will really engage me. So I read for an hour, and at the end of that hour, when I come back in, I can feel I'm more intimate more nuanced, more attentive than before I engaged those great spirits in conversation. Then I take care of my emails, which I can do in one quick swoop because I'm 17 hours ahead of the US. I take a long walk up a hill to the ping pong club. I engage in furious games of ping pong with my neighbors, mostly in their 70s and 80s. I come back home and I still have 
six hours left in the day to spend with my wife. And I think the reason I moved from Midtown Manhattan to nowhere Japan was to stretch out the day so that there would be a thousand hours in every day Mm. and I'd be living on cathedral time instead of airport time. I've never used a cell phone, we don't have a car, we have little media and the day is as eternal as a day next to Walden Pond. My word. Remind us how you got there. Not only out of this maelstrom, but into something entirely different. Yes. So I was, as mentioned in my 20s, working on the 25th floor in midtown Manhattan, four blocks from Times Square, writing on World Affairs for Time magazine, having an exhilarating time with some of the most stimulating colleagues one could imagine. But I thought, I need a compliment to this. And truly, I thought even then that... I don't want, as Thoreau said so beautifully, to die feeling I'd never lived. So I moved to a temple in the back streets of Kyoto, Japan, to live for a year. My year in the temple lasted a week, which is long enough to see a temple in Kyoto, Japan, is not what I'd imagined on 6th Avenue. But 32 years on, the little apartment my wife and I share is probably more monastic than the monastery I envisaged. Mm. So whatever intuition took me to Japan, which had to do with seeking out contemplation, stillness and spaciousness, in my suitcase when I moved to that monastery, there was Thoreau, Emerson and Oscar Wilde. That Mm. intuition was the correct one. And I knew that if I didn't spend time in Japan, something in me would always be unresolved. And I would spend the rest of my life in New York City or wherever thinking, what if I were in Japan? As soon as I arrived in Japan, I never thought of anywhere else. And I thought, this Mm. is the place I need to be. Even though I've been there 32 years on a tourist visa, I never presumed to be Japanese. I want to honor the very hard and fast distinctions that Japan creates. But for a fascinated, often bewildered outsider, I can't think of anywhere richer or kinder than Japan. You write so acutely about Japan. At the same time, I keep wondering, did it have to be Japan at all? What if it had been, you know, Sofia? Or what if it had been, (laughs) you know, Accra in Ghana, in West Africa, or all sorts of other places? The same square footage. Yes, Beautiful, beautiful question. Uh, you know, why go count the cats in Zanzibar, as Thoreau had it? Um, I have traveled widely in Concord, as Thoreau also had it. And as he said, again, and you know these sentences better than I do, it matters not how far you go, the further commonly the worse. What matters is how alive you are. So exactly so. Mm. Insofar as I'm trying to construct my little Walden, uh, that could be anywhere. It's eminently portable. But The first time I encountered Japan was on uh, a layover, unwanted. I was flying back from Hong Kong to my office in New York City, 20 hours uh, at Narita Airport outside Tokyo. Last thing I wanted, to kill the time, I took a walk around the little town of Narita, expecting it Mm. to be an airport town like Queens or Inglewood or Hounslow. And in the course of that morning, uh, I walked into a temple garden. It was a late October day. The sky was brilliant, cloudless. There's a first pinch of coming cold and darkness. Hmm. I looked at where these kindergartners were scattering, gathering acorns, and something pierced me. And I thought, I know this place. I know it better than I know the street on which I grew up in Hmm. Oxford, better than I know my apartment in New York City. This is where I belong. And although I have no formal connection with Japan, 
there was an affinity that I couldn't explain away. The, the way that sometimes you'll meet a stranger and feel you've known her forever and that she knows you better than your friends and family do. Yep. So I thought I can't turn away from this instinct. So literally by the time I boarded my plane four hours later, I decided to move to Japan on the basis of that 20-hour layover. It took me three years to extricate myself from my job at Time Magazine, but I did. And it's the one decision in life I've never regretted. Mm. So is it what you've found or what you've escaped? <laughs> Beautifully put. It's both. But I think what I escaped is much less important. I could have had a very happy life uh, right there in New York City, endlessly challenged and extended and stimulated. But it's what I've found, which is the place that makes sense to me, the place that understands me and that I would aspire to understand my kin. Let's talk about the story of your family, your wife's parents, your parents in Santa Barbara, people dying, people accommodating illness, mystery, decline, autumn, in a word, the approaching end of something that's peculiarly Japanese. I think the awareness of the end of things is peculiarly Japanese, that Everywhere. I used to live in Boston, as you know. And Speaking of the end of things, you mean. (laughs) (laughs) And every October in New England, everyone is feeling autumn's lessons of changelessness and change and what impermanence is all about. But I think in Japan, impermanence is almost the central scripture or doctrine. In the tale of Genji, impermanence is mentioned more than a thousand times. And Mm. everybody is permanently bowing before the reality of impermanence. And I think when I moved from the US to Japan, I was moving from the pursuit of happiness to the reality of suffering. Hmm. That's what this wise, very grown-up old culture in Japan bases its, its life upon. Old age, disease, and death are inarguables. They're a fact of every life, if we're lucky. So that's what we have to work with. And I was coming from, as you said earlier, a family house in Santa Barbara, California, which is all about endless possibility. So at the age of 29, it seemed not the worst time in the world to move from the realm of possibility to reality. What does it mean to grow up? What does it mean to think about the end of things, if not my end, Hmm. the end of people I care about? And Autumn, you rightly said, is, is almost the protagonist of this book. And in Japan, they sometimes say that life is about joyful participation in a world of sorrows. In other words, Mm. every life ends in death, every meeting ends in a separation. But that doesn't mean that life is sorrowful. Actually, that's the source of our joy. It's precisely the fact that you, Chris, are not going to be here forever that makes me cherish this moment with you. And I don't take it for granted. And who was the original authority for that insight? Rejoicing in our participation... Wide awake in the tragedy. Wide awake in the tragedy is another wonderful way of putting it. Joseph Campbell always used to cite it. I think it really is a Buddhist precept. Mm. I think if you ask the Dalai Lama, what's the point of life? He would say, suffering is the truth we can't run away from. But by looking at suffering and acknowledging its existence, that's how we find our hope, our possibility, our sense of wonder, Mm. our refusal to sleepwalk through life and to think... I, Pico, may not be here tomorrow, so let Mm. me make the most of this afternoon sitting in your apartment (laughs) in Beacon Hill. And Thoreau just rings through all of this. He said, you've never met anybody who's fully awake. If you did, you'd you'd be overwhelmed, you'd be melted, you'd be... But to wake up is the message. Yes. 
That's the, the two-word summary of Buddhism. It's about waking up, and that's what the Buddha did, mm. and he sat under the Bodhi tree. And it's never a surprise that Thoreau was the one who brought Buddhist sutras into our language, translating them from the French. I mean, he literally was the first great Buddhist teacher to take his residence um, in Concord, Massachusetts, and to remind us that laws of gravity and the laws of reality, as they apply in Japan and China, probably apply in Massachusetts too. One of his great contributions, I think, was partaking of the wisdoms or steeping himself in the wisdoms of all the cultures of the world, Persian, Hindu, mm. and especially, I would say, Buddhist, and reviving them in the midst of the marketplace of Concord. Coming up, Pico Iyer in Japan is hearing a convergence of his favorite voices, Emerson, Thoreau, the Buddha, Oscar Wilde, and the Dalai Lama. But maybe the real beginning of wisdom for Pico Iyer in Japan was the silence that taught him to hear the unspoken, to read the invisible. This is Open Source. Pico Iyer's meditations on his life in Japan come hand-in-hand hand with a slim volume of Wise Guy Wit titled A Beginner's Guide to Japan in Aphorisms. He describes a Japanese executive, for example, who calls artificial intelligence a great blessing that might let us converse more easily with the dead, not with the future, but with our past. It's so interesting you say that, Chris, because the person who told me that anecdote was embellishing upon it last night. I just happened to meet him. No kidding. And exactly. This was at an Aspen Institute seminar in uh, Kyoto, Japan, two years ago. A lot of very high-level Japanese executives there. And on the concluding day of three days of discussion, my friend, based here in Boston, asked the assembled Japanese, well, what do you think are the effects of artificial intelligence? And people gave the kind of answers they would give in Silicon Valley. And then this woman at a high communications company said, no, the beauty of artificial intelligence is the dead will speak to us unmediated. We will hear Hello? them. Yes. And my friend, American, was shocked. All the Japanese around the table began nodding and said, yes, that's right. That's what artificial intelligence is about. It's got nothing to do with robotics and, and, uh, and driverless cars and all that. It is about reminding us of how porous are the barriers between the living and the dead, the, the world of the spirit and the world of the body. And what my friend told me last night over in Brookline at, over a Japanese meal was that at the very end of the conference, he canvassed every, everybody. We've spoken for 72 hours. What has been the most useful contribution? All the Japanese said, oh, that point about um, artificial intelligence putting us in connection with the dead. That's amazing because yes. it leapt out at me. Totally different zone. Here you write, in the Japan series, baseball, the country's modestly titled answer to the World Series, a fighting spirit award is given each year to the most valuable player on the losing squad. Yes, and when we're on the subject of Japanese baseball, I might remind you, as you probably know, that the very first time an American manager came over to Japan to lead a team, it was Bobby Valentine from the right. Mets, 1995, and he took this extremely mediocre professional Japanese squad, led them to a stunning second-place finish, and was instantly fired. <laughs> and a few foreign journalists were bewildered by this, and they went and asked the team spokesman, what's with that? What did Bobby Valentine do wrong? What was the problem with him? Back came the answer. 
his emphasis on winning. And to us, I think, winning is the good thing. It's the only thing, as Vince Lombardi said. But in Japan, winning means disrupting the harmony of the whole, putting somebody out, mm. making somebody else a loser, which is the last thing they want. And so when I play my ping pong games every day, we play best of two games. <laughs> so there's usually no loser. And if there is a loser... And why do people compete so fiercely? It's compete so fiercely with no view to winning. Exactly. It's, it's confounding to us. We only play doubles, never singles, and we change partners every five minutes. So if by chance you, Chris, happen to lose, six minutes later you'd be winning. I think the whole of Japan is based on this sense. It's like mill and utilitarianism. We don't want Chris or Pika to win. We want the maximum number of people to feel that there are winners. And everyone's intent is designed to encourage that sensation. Where are you now, would you say, Pico, in your self-understanding? Who are you among all these many strands? How is the soul developing in Japan, which you live very practically day to day with all sorts of social delights, pressures, disappointments maybe? Who is Pico Iyer nowadays? <laughs> He's a pathetic would-be Japanese. And when you were saying about my life in Japan, of course the beauty of it is that as a tourist, I enjoy all um, the excitements and the novelty without many of the pressures or the taxes. I wouldn't want to be a Japanese because they are subject to intense social and other kinds of pressure. But for a foreigner in this society that has worked for 1400 years to fashion essentially a beautiful harmony, I get to partake of the harmony to enjoy its fruits and also, I try to stay far enough away from it not to disrupt the harmony with my mm. own dissonance. But left to my own devices, I would spend my every hour in Japan. So if the question, who are you, is really where do you want to be, the only place I want to be is Japan. I feel it's the place I have most to learn from. And I also think you and I have spoken in the past about the pros and cons of globalism. But I certainly feel that all of us have secret homes. In other mm. words, there's some culture... You used to say karmic <clears throat> homes, karmic spaces. Yes, that would be a way to put it. My mother, when I moved to Japan, rolled her eyes and said, oh, you must have been Japanese in a past life. So exactly the same thing. But these countries or people with whom we have a very strong sense of affinity, but no official affiliation. Hmm. And the beauty of the modern era is that more and more of us can actually go to those places, whether it's India or Mexico or Egypt or Japan, and even, in a few lucky cases, live in the place that makes most sense to one, as I am doing. And thanks to Skype and email and all these technologies I usually distrust, actually live full-time in the country of one's heart while communicating with one's bosses and friends across the world. So it's a new, unprecedented opportunity um, in my generation, and, and I've been so lucky to be able to make the most of it by living in Japan um, while essentially functioning in the U.S. and England. Thank you for sharing it. It's important. But I'm also wondering, at a mass level, what could be done with this incredible simultaneity of these thinkers and these mm. values and these different searches? They are totally different. I'm just back from China, hungering for a long course in Confucianism, <laughs> but just as eager to gather a seminar on Emerson and Thoreau and... William James, never to be forgotten. I'm wondering, could it be done? Could it be done with a podcast? Could it be done on the radio? Could it be done with just human voices? 
Could it be done in one language or two? The world needs it. I was going to say as I listened to you, it has to be done. Wisdom converges at the top. And that's why, as you said, all these people, the Stoics, I would add to that group too, who have independently tried to figure out how to live, have come up with essentially the same answer, whether it's East or West. And I feel, and I think you may well too, that cultures are much subtler than governments and much more ready to see beyond binary distinctions. Governments define themselves almost by us versus them, as do political parties. But cultures are much more about us is them. That's the nature of the reading process, the writing process, the imagination. So the exercise you were just mentioning is precisely what the world needs. To be reminded that East and West have many things in common as well as uh, in competition. Over time, there have been these convergences. I remember reading this great sentence around 1890, the head of Trinity Church in Boston, threw up his hands and said, everyone here is just becoming a Buddhist. I give up. 1890 in the United States, Massachusetts. They might say it in Marin County, California now, but this was 130 years ago. So people have been walking this path for a long time. And I think, really, Emerson and Thoreau were, were the pioneers. I want to get to some of the modern convergences here that are new. I didn't know you were such an Oscar Wilde kind of guy, but he figures... And something deeper than his wit, something deeper in his sensibility comes through. Also in something like this, you quote Marcel Duchamp saying blithely, there is no solution because there is no problem. (laughs) And the Japanese visual artist Shigeko Kubota replying, in effect, there is no problem because there is no solution. So Oscar Wilde, I've always seen as a closet transcendentalist. He really took a lot from Emerson in particular. On September 23rd, 1987, I moved to Japan with a suitcase that contained Emerson Thoreau and Oscar Wilde. He was there from the beginning. And in fact, back in 91, I did a back page essay for Time magazine at a time when Japan was really at the center of our concerns, saying, if you want to understand Japan, just read Oscar Wilde. But as you say, not the, the fortune cookie Oscar Wilde, by, by which he's too often reduced or simplified, but the person who had a keen sense of how different depth is from surface. I think Oscar Wilde, deep down, is about nothing other than the distance between surface and depth. And Japan sets up this riddle of intimacy and distance because it beckons you in and the people are so sweet and attentive, but there's some invisible line there. Oscar Wilde was wise to all those things. And I think his gift was for taking transcendentalism and bringing it into the chit-chat of a drawing room and making it sound as if it's just Mm. one-liners being tossed back and forth. But if you open up any of those one-liners, there's a whole philosophy there. You make so many references in Autumn Light to the tale of Genji, a medieval, endless novel of (laughs) intrigue, it seems, love, but it comes back and forth so many times, Pico. I, I kept wondering, what are the fundamental things we need to know about a nation's literature, a nation's culture, a nation's pride, identity? You know, they're Shakespeare or Walt Whitman, whatever. The main thing about all... Japanese literature and therefore Japanese life is that everything that's important is unsaid. And that really silence speaks much more powerfully than any words. And that, as you were saying about how trade, uh, trade wars and the like are really not the heart of the discourse between civilizations, when we talk about Japanese economy, 
The kind I'm interested in is the economy of expression and economy of emotion. In other words, the sense in which the more I feel for you, the less I need to try to put it into words. The less you and I speak, the deeper the communion that the two of us are likely to enjoy. So I think that was a defining characteristic in Japanese literature from the beginning, that the press against the surface of the unspoken. It's fascinating that uh, Japan's great writers from the 10th century, such as Lady Murasaki, who wrote the tale of Genji, were women, because women have so little opportunity to this day in the public sphere in Japan. I think it's further behind than almost any country. But in response or retaliation, they've claimed the private sphere. And so one reason Mm. I've lived in Japan for 32 years on a tourist visa is I've never wanted to engage with public official Japan because I think that's the the site of the least interesting and important parts of the country. And I've always been drawn to the private, the domestic... Um, and the interior worlds, which are constant. Stretch out on the practical value of silence. The words divide where silence brings together, I feel. Words are smokescreens, words are weapons, words are diversions. Silence doesn't accommodate lies. In silence, you and I, Chris, are joined by something deeper than our minds, which the Japanese might call our spirits. I think I mentioned in in this book how Leonard Cohen, whom I spent time with, uh, would say that his closest friend in life was his Japanese Zen teacher. They were together for 45 years. The Japanese man spoke virtually no English. Leonard certainly spoke no Japanese. And they they knew each other inside out and couldn't have been better friends. Mm. Partly because words weren't getting in the way, as they so often do. You know, everyone knows, in a relationship, we use words as daggers. We use words to, to taunt people or to delude them. Silence doesn't offer that so much. Hmm. I note your point that the <laughs> great conversationist is the one who listens. Yes, At yes. the same time, there are other aphorisms here to the effect that the most important thing in a conversation is that you not reveal your feeling. That the yes. feeling not come to the surface. Yes. And, of course, being born and growing up in England, as, as you said I had, is a good head start in that direction. The things that are so perplexing about Japan are second nature to the Englishman, where um, it's considered uh, unseemly, uh, inappropriate, and, and maybe unkind to foist one's feelings on somebody else. Uh, They're dealing with so much already in their lives. Do they need to know that your car just broke down, that you're about to get your wisdom tooth pulled and that your wife is walking out of you? I mean, maybe they do, but my friends for life for the last 45 years are the ones with whom I don't have to say that because they love me and trust me whatever I say or don't say and whatever is happening or not happening in my life and vice versa. And Japan and England, as old cultures, would see the value of too little information because information is not what we most want to share with a cherished friend or even with a neighbor. I'd rather share a silence, something essential, a line from Emily Dickinson than this is what I'm going through with my relationship right now. And what is the test of your experience now? Does it work out that way? The fewer words, the the deeper the bond or not? 
I think that's true. Um, I tend to babble too much because I'm not Japanese and I am of Indian ancestry. But people are sometimes surprised that my wife and I have been together 32 years and her English is limited, my Japanese is more limited, and I've never felt we really suffer communications problems. And when I go back to California, I genuinely, and I'm not saying this facetiously, do feel I'm suffering huge communication problems because of the illusion of a common language, because the notion that they understand the words I'm using means that they're understanding the terms beneath those words, which I think they're not, and I don't understand them in in turn. But we don't. We haven't emphasized enough that your life in Japan is consciously not to learn Japanese. <laughs> yes, and your wife doesn't speak English either. No, There's uh, a profound choice. Yes, it is a choice. Um, I came, as I say, from New York City, where there's plenty of conversation, there's plenty of chit-chat and small talk. And you're right, I almost decided before I arrived I wouldn't learn Japanese, and it's the rare ambition I've succeeded at in life. And it's not entirely because of incapacity, because growing up as a little kid in England, I had to learn Greek and Latin and French and German and Old English, so I had a bit of training in languages. But I thought that the words are not the part of Japan I most want to learn. And I should say my wife does speak English and I can certainly understand her English and I have enough Japanese words to fill in the gaps. But um, it's about sharing meanings and she can get her meaning across to me with no problem. And the Japanese are so good at reading body language, at reading silence, at listening to all the things that are not being said. They call it their reading the air. So every night when I go into the ping pong club and they're 11 people there, and one of them really wants to play, and another one wants to play with somebody else, and a fourth one is feeling a little sick but doesn't want to burden everyone with that knowledge. My job going in there is to figure all that out, not through anything they say, but through the gift of attention. And I think it speaks to one of your earlier questions about reverence. Reverence is essentially attention, Simone Vale would say. And I think that's what we're sometimes lacking in our age of distraction and our land of uh, multitasking. And that's one of the reasons I went to Japan to learn attention, which means hearing the unspoken and reading the invisible and coming into a room and trying to work out what people's needs are. And I think that's one of the surprising things to many of us when we go to Japan. You meet a Japanese person and she has no interest in advancing her dogma, her ideology, um, her design. She's entirely about finding out who you are and what you need and what will make you most comfortable. Mm. And sometimes we don't know what to do with that, but it's a sign of, of selflessness and the other coming before oneself. And that's another reason I went to Japan to try to learn some of those things. More aphorisms. <laughs> Japanese have a sharp-edged sense of what can be perfected. Gizmos, surfaces, manners, and what cannot. Morals, emotions, families. More nearly perfect on the surface than any country I've met. Less afflicted by the sense that feelings, relationships, people can be made perfect. They always say, you know, the surveys about happiness always say that the happiest people are the ones with the fewest false expectations. And I would say the Japanese don't have false expectations of life. They know um, life has a tragic ending in most cases. And they also know, as you said earlier, that that doesn't mean that every day has to be tragic. I think I end the Autumn Light book with a beautiful sentence from Edith Wharton at the end of her autobiography, which says something like, although the years are sad, the days have a way of being jubilant. 
And I think it's holding mm. those two in the same frame that is part of the great Japanese gift. Humanity and perfection don't go hand in hand. And I think one has to acknowledge and、um, embrace the humanness of things if we're actually going to work in the real world. Coming up, the further lessons Pico Iyer is absorbing in autumn how to hold on to the things we love even though we know that we and they are dying. Grasping, as he says, that whatever remains is everything. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Pico Iyer. Is our sage of East and West. He brings to the job Indian ancestry, British and American education, a Santa Barbara coming of age in California, and now a deepening devotion to the ritual calm of rural Japan, where he and his wife have lived for almost 30 years. He's sharing the fruits of his travels with the Dalai Lama far and wide. But we begin again with Pico's aphorisms. For example, in Japanese give and take, everything is deeply personal. It just has nothing to do with you. Yes, I think that is in the section about Japanese service, which means I go into my local bakery, I buy an eclair for two dollars. The woman smiles at me. She talks about the weather. She wraps it in a piece of paper. She puts it in a box. She takes a special seal to put on it. She hurries out from behind the counter. She opens the door to make sure I'm okay. If it's suddenly begun to rain, she will hand me an umbrella. She lavishes all this care on me, which couldn't be more personal. But it's nothing to do with me. She will do that with and to every person who comes into the bakery. And I think it's those are the places. Where the foreigner again comes undone because he's the recipient or beneficiary of this beautiful grace, and he thinks, "Oh, maybe she likes me. Maybe she wants me to ask her out on a date. Maybe I've done something to charm her." Probably not. If he hangs around a few more minutes, he will see that she is doing this for every last grandmother and little kid who comes into the place. Another aphorism, please. You quote your wife saying, "My colleague spends two hours a day making herself up," and your wife's on her way to the department store where she works. You ask, "She wants everyone to look at her?" No, she wants everyone not to. In Japan, the aim is to be invisible. You could say the aim is to be generic, and again, disconcerting to us because I remember growing up as a kid in California, everyone was saying, "You've got to learn to be yourself." In Japan, you don't want to be yourself. You want to be a platonic model of what a convenience store person is like, or you want to be like everybody else because you're part of an orchestra. And in an orchestra, one person may be designated a soloist, but everybody else's job is to fit into this larger beauty and music, and to play her part perfectly but invisibly, so as to make everything else come. Together, so I went to Japan partly to learn to be invisible because I thought growing up in England and America, I'd been trained quite a lot to talk, to push myself forwards, to concentrate on what was distinctive in myself, and maybe it was a good thing to learn how to listen, to learn that what was most essential in me is what is common to everybody, and that actually it was by not pushing myself forwards that I might come upon a better self. Pico, you live in this marvelous little community of Deers Slope in Nara. What are the bigger trends in Japan that we read about, including 
kind of disaffiliation in relationships, lowering birth rate, decline of a, of a great society. Lowering birth rates, which you mentioned before, is certainly the essential one. I would say the two others that come to my mind are Japan's reluctance to take in foreigners, and the foreigners are the ones who could help looking after the elderly and making up the deficiencies of workforce age people. Where were they be coming from? Indonesia, the Philippines? What? Yes, exactly. All their neighbors, uh, neighboring countries are full of people who would be glad of Japanese wages and the chance of a job. The Philippines would be a perfect one, Vietnam, Nepal, so many places, mm. Sri Lanka. And secondly, um, Japan's treatment of women is still retrograde. So when you say decline of a great culture, I'd say maybe decline of a, a great, great nation, I was thinking. Or a great society, maybe. I'd say the society is suffering a lot because it's so out of sync with the rest of the world. And China and South Korea, its rivals and neighbors, much better at speaking the language of the world, sharing the values of the West. Japan sticks to its own way, is losing out big time, has been suffering a series of recessions for 25 years now. But mm. culturally, of course, it's reaping the benefits of the fact that it's not globalized, it's not homogeneous, mm. it bears no relation to anywhere else. And so I think what Japan has realized, maybe subconsciously in recent years, is the only way it can boost its economy is by marketing its difference and stressing the fact that it's the most foreign place on earth. So the number of international tourists has surged in just a few years from 5 million to 31 million. The whole of the world has discovered Japan is crowding in there and thus the cultural grace of Japan to be so unassimilated is making up for the geopolitical consequences of being unassimilable. But you're right that in the long term, it's a serious problem. Japan is a society in decline. It surged up after the war and, like so many places, hasn't been able to keep up that momentum. But Japanese women, sensibly, have been noticing, as is in the case perhaps with my wife, let's marry a foreigner. Let's travel to really? Boston where we're not under these constraints. Let's join a foreign company where I actually am given the scope to do all the things my talents qualify me for. And so I think Japan is justifiably losing, uh, is having a brain drain when it comes to the 51% of its population that's female who is so ill-served by the public sphere. Yeah, that's why I think 80% of the tourists or the English language students you might see in this country from Japan are women. They have every investment to flee the country. Where mm. men are so well served by the system, they have every inducement to stay. Let's come back to the Dalai Lama. You wrote a wonderful book on him. He was a figure, close friend of your father's, used to visit in and out of the house in England. He was like Uncle Dalai Lama. <laughs> and you know his thinking intimately. That was a decade ago, but I wonder if we don't need the man more than we ever did now. In China, of course, he, he is Mr. Tibet. That's a no-no. I also sense that he is seen as a kind of an American pawn or something. At the same time, his thinking goes so deep and is so practically useful, as you suggest. What should we be asking of that man while we have him? We've asked of him so much, and he's given more than we have ever asked for already, but I couldn't agree with you more, Chris. Uh, earlier, you were talking, I think, about how, let's say, poets are the, should be the unacknowledged legislators of mankind, that our politicians are making a fine mess of things, but there are all these other things going on in the world that 
bring cultures together. And he's the perfect example of that, insofar as probably one of the most visible religious figures in the world. And his last major book was called Beyond Religion. He tells people religion is a luxury, it's great if you have it, but that's not what you need to survive. What you need is basic sense of human kindness and responsibility. He's probably the most visible Buddhist in the world, and when he comes to this country, he tells people, please don't become Buddhists. Stay within your own traditions. You can learn something perhaps from Buddhists. Mm. Buddhists have much to learn from you, but don't go racing after a foreign tradition which you may not entirely understand. You have deep roots already. And so he takes all these counterintuitive positions that are entirely about finding the commonness within us. And it's very moving because since I published my book 11 years ago, I've spent much, much more time with him. And every November, um, I travel across Japan by his side for every day of his seven or 10 day visits Mm. uh, for, I think, nine straight Novembers. And he actually even lets me and my wife sit in on all his private meetings. So we're with him eight hours a day, uninterrupted every day of his Japanese visit. And we see him in public and private in between. And one of the moving things is every day we'll meet him at his hotel room, 8.30 usually, go down in an elevator to the hotel lobby. There'll be dozens of people waiting there with cameras, with ceremonial white scarves to present to him, seeking out his blessing, his advice, a selfie with him. And a little four-year-old girl will come forward and he will find the four-year-old inside him. He will listen to that girl as if he were listening to the Buddha and not think, I am a Dalai Lama, I am male, I am Tibetan. Does she know who I am? (laughs) Certainly not that. But his genius has always been for making a connection with everybody. I remember once we were in Hiroshima and a woman strode forwards and began heckling him. Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama, I have something to say to you. And most of us, myself included, in that situation would turn away and would have the bodyguards spirit her away. He asked his bodyguards to bring her right next to him so he could hold her, hold her face between Mm. his hands, Mm. look deep into her eyes, and one way or another try to convey to her... I have nothing against you. We have more in common than apart. I'm sorry you feel angry, but I'm not your enemy. I'm your friend. And that's a very practical day-to-day example. But in his thinking, the reason he downplays religion is I think that he's seen how divisive religion can be and how so many of the conflicts in the war are conducted under the pretext of religion. So he thinks, sweep that, get that out of the way. That's being used or misused by people to create the sense of us versus them. Mm. Our common humanity, which is a cliched phrase, but it's a real idea, is what joins us. Um, It's always so moving to me that when there are disturbances in Tibet, he begins his day by praying for his Chinese brothers and sisters. Mm, mm, mm. And I think part of his political genius is to say you can be entirely in support of Tibetan people without being at all against the Chinese people. It's not as if one has to succeed at the expense of the other. You know, Dalai Lama has been taken up in our culture in Apple computer ads from time to time or the news magazines, whatnot. I think we're we're overdue for some Dalai Lama, but where would you want it to intervene in our public conversation? Environmentalism is clearly one of his concerns. He's appalled by the violence being practiced by Buddhist monks in Myanmar, for example, and speaks out vehemently against all of that. He's horrified by the growing inequity and gap between the rich and the poor. I think 
He's used the respect he's won from the world to try to speak out on every issue around. His challenge has been, have we really been listening? And the ball really has been in China's court in terms of seeing that even China stands to gain so much by opening the door to the Dalai Lama, by letting up on the repression in Tibet, by realizing what a huge PR loss as well as psychic loss it is for them to keep prosecuting this vengeance against a person who speaks only for harmony and peace. Mm. Um, One of the most moving things about traveling across Japan every year with the Dalai Lama is that there'll always be one moment in his schedule where we walk into a room and there are about 300 people and they're on the ground and as soon as he comes in they begin mm. sobbing. Just this extraordinary release of emotion and they're, they're ragged people and they prostrate before him and they just can't contain their emotions to see him. And the first time I witnessed this, I was shaken to see a whole room pulsing with this kind of gratitude and devotion and relief. And then I was told that every single person in that room was Han Chinese. I just assumed they were Tibetan. They're all Han Chinese. They are desperate to find some kind of religious or spiritual guidance. They know that born next door to them is this great treasure house, as you were saying. And since they can't meet him in China itself, they will save up all their money to come to Japan just for 30 or 40 minute meeting oh. with him. Um, and sometimes even his private secretaries can barely keep a dry eye. There's so much emotion in the room. And that actually reminds me of what I was going to say when you talked about interventions by the Dalai Lama. Most of us know by now that his great passion is science. And some people don't know why a man of religion would be placing such emphasis on science. <laughs> but that's because, for example, the law of gravity is inarguable. It's universal. It's a fact of life, whether you're in Nepal or Chad or Bolivia. And what various scientists have been finding empirically at the urging of the Dalai Lama is that certain other rules of human possibility are also universal, that if you and I go to the health club, we'll live longer. If you and I spend a few minutes sitting still every day, our capacity for processing information, our sense of compassion, our sense of empathy, all go up. Mm. You see it, um, it's being explored in the labs of Stanford, University of Wisconsin, University of Virginia, Emory, many, many other places. And there is inarguable scientific proof now of how going to the inner health club, as it were, has great benefits for our well-being. Not as the Dalai Lama would say and stress, related to any religion or any doctrine or any text, just if you want to be healthy in your body, do exercise and take care of your diet. If you want to be healthy in your mind and your spirit, which most of us do even more than our bodies, these are certain things you can do. And it's, it's scientific. It, it's not a Buddhist thing. You know how I discovered Dalai Lama's devotion to science? No. We had a long-arranged hour of conversation on National Public Radio. He was in Houston as it happened. And at the end of the half-hour break, one of his men came out and said, he will not be back for the second half-hour. He was doing brilliantly. Why, I said. And they said, well, he's just been given a chance to see a rocket launched outside (laughs) Houston. And there was no contest for his attention. Pico Iyer, tell us at the end of the book, Autumn Light, about the light. The light 
of autumn? Well, I was saying before that the seasons I see as the guiding and abiding religion of Japan. And they are a religion without dogma, without exclusions, like some of the other practices mm. we've been talking about. And I see light as ecumenical. I see silence as ecumenical. And when I describe the light in Japan, it's in the context of the coming darkness, by which I don't mean anything apocalyptic, but in November, the days are growing shorter, winter's coming on, you know that um, darker days are on their way, and yet there's this brilliant late autumn light that slants into our apartment every day and really is the protagonist of my book. Autumn and light are the two main figures in my book. And it reminds us that the end of autumn is the first step towards spring, that autumn isn't actually the end of things, but it's it's a, a move towards renewal of things again, which is that whole process of changelessness and change. When I moved from California to Japan, I was moving from a place which assumed that tomorrow is wiser than yesterday and that we're advancing in a straight line, as technology sometimes does, to a place that sees things in terms of cycles. Every year, the autumn is the same there, but every year, the pico who's witnessing the autumn is a little different. He's one year older. He's, he's got less hair. He's grayer than he was before. He's one year closer to the end of his life. And my book, I suppose, was about trying to balance the reality of extinction with the beautiful possibility of every moment that's heightened by that reality. And so the autumn light is a blessing and a jubilation in just the kind of ways that Emerson and Thoreau mm. described in their journals about their autumn days. And it reminds me as the days are getting darker that there's this huge benefaction right here, right now. Let me not worry about the winter that's coming. Let me not think back on the spring that's passed. Let me rejoice in the fact that the single most beautiful season of the year in Japan is autumn. Pico, I had such a joy to read you and such a pleasure to talk with you from time to time. Let's do this again. Anytime, Chris. It's such a delight to be with you. Thank you. Pico Iyer's new book is called Autumn Light. Coming in the fall will be its companion, A Beginner's Guide to Japan. There are more Pico Iyer conversations on our website, along with an awesome archive. Visit us, please, at radioopensource.org. And while you're there, subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, and think of making a donation to the team that brought you the world's first podcast. Still the longest-running one, 15 years going strong. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our Zen master. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source.